Hello and welcome back to the Lars Resort, which continues to be a podcast with me, Lars Sievertson. Uh, brought to you by Betson, very kindly brought to you by Betson. Uh, it is Monday afternoon. I'm back in Norway a little bit, just to sort of uh, check that it's still there. Basically, I haven't I haven't been there for a while. You know, who knows? I can confirm that Norway is still there, which is nice. And I can confirm that I still have a family over on this part of the part of the North Sea, which is which is also good. I hadn't seen them for a while, so that that's all very good and very nice. Um, there was a lot of football this weekend and i was able to pay attention to it even though i was on the other side of an ocean and not in uh, london as as per usual there's some stuff to talk about but you know what i'm going to really zero in on the title uh, the, the the title battle if we can call it that while we still have one because in a couple of days maybe not so much you know we're heading towards what should be the game of the season what hopefully will be the game of the season well, what we've certainly we've thought for a few weeks should and would be the game of the season, the title decider. But Arsenal, man, you guys, I may have jinxed this, jinxed it terribly. But but what I want to say about Arsenal right now, anyway, is that first of all, this is such an unusual uh, thing, or I, I guess it is an unusual. I guess it's the new normal. But usually, there was a time, and for a long time, you could have this sort of dip in uh, a title race and still win the league. I mean, it is a very new thing, this, that any sort of significant dip in form, and, and it's all gone, like it's all a disaster, still not possible. I mean, Arsenal are still on track to finish with something like 89 points this season. And, and, and I've gone back and I've looked at it. I mean, that's the rate at which they're accumulating points now. I mean, if they're going to continue to do weird stuff like concede three goals at home to teams like Southampton, they might not. They might not take that many points at all between now and the end of the season. But if we, we take their average so far, they're on track for like 89 points. Now, between... I've looked at the numbers here. I've looked at the past. I've looked at history. Between 1992 and 2016, 24 seasons of Premier League football, we, we, we went over 89 points. The title winner went over 89 points six times. So just 25% of the time, 75% of the time, uh, 89 points would do it. Uh, or, or 90 points. There was one There was one year it was 89 exactly. So yeah, pretty much pretty much 75% of the time, 89 points would be enough for you. But since 2016, the winner of the Premier League has gone over 89 points five out of six times, right? So very, very recently, in the last half decade, we've gone from 90 points being this sort of crazy number of points that we ne- almost never see or that we only see about a quarter of the time until being the norm. Like, this is what you need to do now to win the league. And this is all, of course, driven by Manchester City, uh, who have won four out of the last five league titles in England, looking increasingly now like they're going to make that five out of the last six. So you have a situation in the Premier League where a team that is effectively owned and funded by a nation state, or certainly has been backed by immense mineral wealth of an of a country, and a club that's also been charged with breaking the Premier League sort of financial rules over a hundred times. By the way, that they're setting a new bar for what is necessary to do to win this league. Is that a healthy place for the Premier League to be? Is that good? Probably not. Like, like we make fun of a league uh, for not being a serious uh, sporting competition anymore, but they've actually had three different winners in the last six years: uh, Monaco, Lille, and then PSG four times. 
uh, we're about to have uh, five City wins in six. So, so in that sense, actually less competitive than Liga, the Premier League is. That's that's not ideal, and I guess that's why a small part of me, even though I'm Spurs, had at least. I mean, obviously, I don't want Arsenal to win the league. That's I'll never feel that way. But there was a part of me that thought, you know what, if they do. At least that means it's still possible. Uh, it's possible for a team that's not Man City and a team that has a considerably smaller wage bill than them to, to do the extraordinary and finish above them. Now, uh, Miguel Delaney of The Independent uh, wrote an interesting piece last weekend where he took very much the opposite view, ar- arguing that actually Arsenal winning the league would be bad because it would allow us to think that this league is still healthy and competitive and that there's not a problem there. Uh, Miguel wrote, uh, in a normal run-in of the type that has existed for over 130 years of English football history, drop-offs like Arsenal's would be considered part of the drama of it all rather than potential conclusions. And and here's the main point in the paragraph below here. Um, An autocratic state has bought a club for political purposes and built it up to a level where it is the most lavishly funded in history, a gleaming worldwide project. That has meant that in order to have a chance at winning the league, any challenger has to get to at least 90 points. The likelihood right now is that City end up somewhere between 90 and 94. That certainly isn't normal. If teams can even get to 90 points on a regular basis, something has gone wrong in football. That is a problem that goes way beyond City. Uh, I, I think that's a I think that's a good point, well made, uh, and the idea being that this is a problem that football needs to wake up to this sort of unevenness in the game, and Arsenal winning the league would just kind of paper over some cracks here. Now, first of all, before we get angry tweets here, I personally am not of the belief that City's wealth and the origins of that wealth just kind of devalues all the work done by the club in a sporting sense. I think it's still impressive in some ways and worthy of note and analysis of the rest of it. Uh, Because you can spend a pile of money badly and not achieve very much at all. Uh, They know that very well in Manchester. You just have to look across town at the last 10 years of Manchester United. Uh, It's entirely possible to spend an absolute pile of money and not achieve anything at all. It can be done. Uh, Ed Woodward and the lads have shown us the way. And you can also look across the channel at, at PSG who are just a total madhouse uh, because the people who run the club uh, care more about like the brand and image and stuff like that than actually building a football team. So you've ended up with this sort of insane team that's just completely unmanageable and you somehow managed to not win the league every year. Like About a third of all wages paid out in Liga in the entire division are paid out by PSG. Their, their wage bill is more than three times as big as the second richest club in the league. It's a fully ridiculous competition. But still, as we've spoken about... If, if if Manchester City now go on to win the Premier League, that means PSG will actually have dropped more league titles than them recently, which is quite embarrassing for them. But that's what you get when you have an infinite budget and you just assemble a team that's more of a guest list, really, than a football team. They're sort of the, the Kendall Roy's birthday party of football, is what PSG are. Now, now City are what you get. Manchester City are what you get. If you have the sort of infinite wealth of an authoritarian petrostate backing a club, and then you actually run it well. Like, that, that, that's what you get. And the result is that you get a club that's very, very difficult for anyone else to deal with. And the concern, I guess, for the Premier League is that this is where we're at with City now. They're, they're, they're so well run. They're so well funded. They will effectively become the Paris Saint-Germain or the Bayern Munich of this division. If they do win their fifth title in six seasons, it is kind of hard to avoid that line of thinking. But, but the silver lining behind the cloud here for fans of other clubs and neutrals who just want the league to be more interesting would be that 
what if this isn't just what you get from City? What if this is what you get when you combine Manchester City, their money and their smartness with Pep Guardiola, right? In the same way that Man United were actually the richest team in the world in the 90s, uh, you know, when Deloitte started doing their money league thing, uh, the ranking of the richest football teams, uh, or at least the ones with the highest income, uh, in 1996, Man United were the top of the world, and they stayed top in the world on that list uh, for the first eight years of that being done. So really, before the Glazers took over and started allowing uh, United's position to slip, they were the richest team in the world. It, it's actually one of the great fallacies of sort of modern football discourse. You see some people say that, oh, the Glazers, they've been very good for United commercially, you know? It's total nonsense. Like, they took over a club that had the highest income in the world of football clubs, and they now own a club that has the fourth highest income in the world. Like, they took over a market-leading company and allowed it to drift because they didn't need to innovate or improve anything to still make piles of money off of it. Anyway, United were the richest team in the world. They could pick or choose players from the league like no one else and we did have a period of seven title wins in nine seasons for United but they did lose that supremacy first of all because rivals started improving themselves and the Glazers allowed things to drift yeah sure but they also lost it eventually because a lot of that success was down to the the class of 92 of course that great generation of players but crucially Sir Alex Ferguson and of course they've had no success at all after Sir Alex and stepped down in, in spite of still being able to spend a lot of money so it's possible that a lot of this is just partially because Pep Guardiola is a genius. Uh, in a very different way to Sir Alex, of course, they're very different managers, and times have changed in a lot of ways, but but that it's Pep Guardiola who's driving this team to a level of sustained and consistent excellence that we're just not used to seeing in, in this division, or certainly that we haven't seen since United in the early 90s. Of course, it was different back then. United were able to win the league with just 75 points one year, so very, very different times. But of course, they did win seven out of nine, which is pretty crazy and pretty dominant. The point being, got a bit sidetracked here, the fear that fans of other teams and neutrals have if you want the Premier League to be competitive the fair is that this is just City now they're not going to be stopped because they have so much money they're so smart all this stuff that 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 they are now the Bayern of, of England and the PSG of England and and the, the Juventus the, the Juventus that we had in Italy before they started shooting themselves in the foot and and messing it all up that is something that people worry about and probably should worry about if we get to five out of six. But the hope then is, if you're someone who who doesn't want that, is that Guardiola is a bigger factor here than that analysis allows for. That without Guardiola, uh, City will just be one of four or five super rich teams. And while they may be very, very smart, then some of the other ones can also be very, very smart. And this sort of sustained success is more a result of having just a unique manager on on top of all of that money. Just to put it that way, it's the combination of the money, the club being smartly run, and Guardiola. Because we know it's possible to have a lot of money to mess up. And I believe that it's possible to have all this money, to have these smart people running the club and still mess up. Because if you do lose Guardiola at some point, you're going to have to find a manager who can do the kind of things that Guardiola does. And no matter how rich and smart you are, that is not easy. So I think I think Miguel Delaney's point is very well observed. I think maybe we should be talking about it more. Uh, I, I think it's an under-communicated and under-appreciated problem for the Premier League. You know, we hear all the advertisement for it and the PR stuff, and it's like, oh, it's the most competitive team. It's, it's such a healthier and better league than those other leagues in Europe. Well, you know, if you have one team winning five out of six league titles, it's not that competitive, is it? 
And I suppose the winning margins have been narrower than those of Bayern and PSG recently, of course. But still, I think that's something we should probably be talking about more. Now, where I differ from uh, from Miguel Delaney is I think, I think a really big part of that secret sauce is Pep Guardiola. I think if you take him out of it, City wouldn't be as dominant, no matter how clever the, the, the guys in the director box are. And as much as I will take shots at City and sort of be snarky about their wealth and all that, I think it would be slightly wrong-headed not to acknowledge that what they've done on the field has been an incredible achievement, money or no money. Uh, and, and, and really, this season is a case in point. It's another case in point. They had a real challenge on their hand in the fact that they now have Alling Hall on up front who's an amazing goal scorer, but is not a striker who will drop off and be that extra midfielder and help them control possession like they're used to having. And we were all sat here going, hmm, how is this going to work? And we've had some games this season where it hasn't looked like it's worked very well at all. And and people have started making those sort of, oh, is Hall on making City worse? And has he gone to the right club uh, conversations? Uh, but if you look at City now, Guardiola has concocted this sort of system where where John Stone steps into midfield in possession and you get the sort of solidity of a back four out of possession, but you have a really good structure in your build-up with the sort of three defenders and two deep, deep midfielders and the wide players. So you have a lot of good passing lanes there. But in addition to that, you also get effectively an extra midfielder when you have the ball. And that kind of helps offset some of what you don't get from Holland. So you have an extra guy in there which helps you control the game better and you can still enjoy the fruits of having one of the best, if not the best, goal poachers in the world right now up front and you can still do a lot of the Manchester City things. And I think they've also adapted to Holland a little bit. They're playing that direct ball a little bit faster, but they found a solution to the problem, seems like, and that's Guardiola all around. Like, that's him looking at the problem, saying, you know, we've got to figure something out here. And I really don't think a lot of us were looking at Man City in August saying, hmm, you know what City needs to, to make this work? They need to turn John Stones into like a hybrid midfielder who, who plays in the back line out of possession and then he goes into the double pivot. Like, no one was saying that. Certainly, I don't think so. I know they played, they were doing similar stuff with Cancelo last season. He was stepping out of the back line, but he was going in a completely different sort of role, going much more forward. Uh, this what they're doing with Stones is kind of new. And and, and finding that solution, that, that's all Guardiola. Like, that's that's not City's money or all their cleverness off the pitch or whatever. Uh, that, that might have built them this brilliant squad, but it was still a squad that you needed a coach to look at and sort of think, huh, how is this going to make sense? And he appears to have found a solution that, that's going to take them all the way to the league title uh, with a little bit of help from the players, of course. Now, unless... Unless, unless Arsenal can stop them this week, right? It is still, to some extent, in Arsenal's hands uh, a, a tiny bit. I saw Opta had looked at that. The big brains at Opta, uh, they, they believe that if Manchester City win the game, there is a 91% chance of them winning the title. 91%. If it's a draw, it's a 72% chance of them winning the title. But if Arsenal could win it, there's suddenly a 56% chance of Arsenal winning the title. So they're right back in it. And I suppose, I mean, I suppose the fact that uh, that number is comparatively low to, to what uh, the percentage chances if City wins, I, I feel like that reflects a certain suspicion that Arsenal might not win all their other games. You know, if you're making unforced errors and dropping points to West Ham and Southampton, you can't really assume 
that they're going to get through the games against Chelsea, Newcastle, and Brighton completely unscathed, that they're just going to go and knock those out. It's hard to trust Arsenal right now, or at least Newcastle and Brighton. I mean, this Chelsea team, they really should beat. But the point is they would still have a chance. And uh, the big thing that's changed because of the West Ham and Southampton games is that it's kind of taken the draw out of the equation for Arsenal. The draw isn't useful anymore. A few weeks back, we were looking at this game between these two, thinking Arsenal just need to not lose to City and win the rest of their games, and they'll be home free. That is no longer the case. They've they've messed up. Uh, They now need to win. Or, of course, they could hope City stumble, but City have... I mean, they have a crazy fixture list. They have a lot of games, but not that many terrifying opponents in the league left. I'm not sure where they're going to drop points. Maybe they'll get injuries, fatigue, I don't know. But right now, it looks like they've just timed their fitness peak perfectly. They all look sharp. They're playing some of their best football all year. Just when it matters the most, you have different players stepping up when it's needed. They found a system that appears to both get the best out of Alan Holland and still allow them to control games and do Man City things. It's kind of all coming up City at the moment. Uh, so I think we probably do have to assume that they're likely to win their remaining games or at least drop fewer points than Arsenal in the run-in after this. So Arsenal have to do it. They have to win. Uh, that's the situation they're in. What has gone wrong for them recently? I mean, I thought they were going to win it. Maybe that was like the, the Tottenham fan in me doing a sort of coping mechanism thing and just sort of mentally trying to prepare myself. But I, I really did, it did seem like they were in such a good flow. Uh, and uh, so I've already been wrong about this in a very big way already. And I'm afraid to say I don't I don't have like a big brain Sherlock Lars theory about what has gone wrong for them here. I know that sounds like a cop out, but I think there's a combination of factors. First of all, during the course of a 38 game season, having a few dips is the norm. It's not the exception. It's what usually happens for even the best teams. And we've spoken about this. Arsenal look like they're going to end up with a points total that usually would win you the league. So far, they're averaging 2.34 points per game over 38 games. That gets you 89 points. And and 89 points, by the way, that's one point less than the Invincibles got in 2004, right? It's a pretty decent season, you have to say. It's a brilliant season. It's just that to finish ahead of a Man City team like this, you, you need to be more than brilliant. You need to be pretty much flawless. And uh, it's quite a thing to think about that, by the way, that, that the points total that the Invincibles ended up with, uh, the Arsenal Invincibles in 2004, that would only have been enough to win them the league in one out of the last six seasons now. It's not good enough like to be undefeated, whatever. You need well over 90 points now to, to make sure you win the league. That, that's where the bar is now. So in this Arsenal... You've got the youngest squad in the league. They've got something like the fifth or sixth biggest wage bill in the league. I suspect it's pretty close between them and Spurs now. So over the course of 38 games, you're relying on on young players to to play out of their skin every week. You're relying on some pretty established players to to put in like career best seasons. And by and large, that's what's been happening with Arsenal. You know, you have guys like Shaka, Partey, Zinchenko all playing some of their best football in their careers. You've got younger guys like yeah, like Gabrielli. I oh, I gotta. I have got to stop saying that. I, I keep calling Gabriele Martinelli Gabrielli. Gabrielli, of course, was an Italian composer in the 1600s. Not a goal-scoring winger for Arsenal. Big difference. Martinelli, Martinelli, Saka, Saliba, those younger guys, they're having huge seasons. Uh, but there are just a few things working against them now. One would be the lack of depth in some positions. I mean, God bless Rob Holding. He is doing his best. But the drop-off from Saliba to him, that's not a small drop-off. That's a pretty big drop-off. 
similar stuff in midfield. You need Shaka and Party to play their best every week because the backups are Lukonga and Jorginho. I mean, maybe Jorginho could have could have started a few games as possible. And 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 you also have this forward on the field. Like if you want to rest Saka or Martinelli, yeah, you've got Trossard can come in, Reese Nelson can come in. They're not bad players. But if you're comparing to City, I mean, they can rotate Grealish, Mares, and Phil Foden and Bernardo Silva over two spots. It's not the same, is it? I, that, that, that's something slightly different, as much as I admire the impact Trossard has had. So, so some dips in form will probably just always happen because you don't have amazing options to rotate when, when players are tired or injured or, or lose a bit of form. And there is this pressure now, right? These guys aren't idiots. They know that they've gotten themselves in a position where they're top of the league, ahead of the run-in, in front of just really the most dominant team we've seen in England in decades. And this is the youngest squad in the league. It does stand to reason that in these sort of high-pressure moments, it might maybe have been useful to have a few more players who, who've been there before, right? I will say, though, what initially convinced me and made me think Arsenal were going to do it was that they did have a couple of games where they like conceded first, things went well, and I thought, generally speaking, they responded well to that, like against Aston Villa, for instance. But yeah, now we've seen, I mean, against Liverpool, we talked about it, I thought they got a bit afraid and defensive there. I thought the sort of the Anfield psychology got the better of them and against West Ham and Southampton they were just a bit sloppy you know the, the goals they conceded against Southampton were terrible goals to concede like uh, Ramsdale who's been very good makes a sort of David De Gea-esque mistake and, and then you have a super clumsy like giveaway in the central midfield that shouldn't happen and no one responds very well to the turnover and you concede the second goal and, and the, the third one like there's a corner kick, and you just leave one of Southampton's center half. So, yeah, well, f- feel free to attack the far post there, Mr. Center Half. I mean, we certainly won't mark you or try to stop you. Like, that's pretty bad. And, and that's not something that you saw Arsenal do a lot of earlier in the season. So, you do wonder if there's an element of the pressure of the situation be being felt a, a little bit. All that being said, I, I, I will not entertain talk of Arsenal bottling it, I don't think, as as is the favourite phrase on, on the internet. Because I still think this is just a team that's performed well above expectations this season. And, and like Not finishing above Man City, if that's an abject failure uh, for the team with the fifth or sixth biggest wage bill and the youngest squad in the league, I mean, what does that make Man United or Liverpool or Chelsea? I mean, that's that's got to be a failure beyond uh, index, beyond our vocabulary. Uh, good Lord, I think what Arsenal have done this season is incredibly impressive. I think it should be an inspiration to the teams around them in the table, Tottenham in particular, uh, who are not very close to Arsenal in the table right now, but financially at least. Uh, and and if they can't get it over the line in the end, for me that it's more about this Man City team being totally unstoppable, pretty much. Anyway, that's the setup ahead of this game this week. I still think, I mean, it's it's going to be exciting. There's not much in what Arsenal have been doing uh, the last couple of weeks that suggests they could stop Man City. But uh, 90 minutes of football, anything can anything can happen. Uh, I, I've checked the odds. Uh, uh, bets on are offering odds of 1.55 on Man City to win on Wednesday nights are pretty heavy favorites, understandably so. And overall, the price on City to win the league has now dropped as low as 125. Boy, I really misread that one a couple of weeks ago. I had way too much faith in Arsenal, that was my problem. But uh, just 125 on City winning the title now, 4.0 on Arsenal. The betting markets have very, very little faith in the Gunners right now. Now, before you round up this episode with a betting segment, 
Why no Tottenham, I hear you ask? We've been talking about Arsenal and City. We've not even addressed uh, Tottenham setting new standards for ineptitude. Really plow- plumbing the depths here. How, how low can we go? First 20 minutes against Newcastle, incredibly bad, like uh, fascinatingly bad. And I'll, I'll be honest, this might sound weird. I was almost enjoying it after a while, you know, because... Sometimes just a total humiliation can be quite a useful thing, is what I'm thinking. You know, when things are going wrong in general, abject failure can really focus the mind. You know, sometimes you need the cleansing flames of the forest fire and the creative destruction of the flames to clear space and prepare the undergrowth uh, for for the future and, you know, create good conditions for growth. I don't know. Uh, As you know, as you'll remember... I do think a lot of the criticism that Daniel Levy gets is a bit over the top, a bit hysterical. Tottenham are having a terrible season. Yes, they look set to finish sixth or seventh. But of course, in the decade before Enoch and Levy took over the club, that would have been considered a very good season because they usually finish ninth or tenth. Uh, So when I hear talk of how Levy has destroyed the club, I was like, again, you know, what are you, five? Anyway, all that being said, I do think that not, not appointing any kind of credible caretaker manager when Conte was sent away was a mistake. I think that's pretty clear, especially because Champions League was still well within reach. But I guess they were. There was an element of paralysis. You know, you had the whole Paratici thing uh, going on, and and, and I, maybe the temptation was to just let it rattle along and hope that players would be good enough to carry you through. But in hindsight, yeah, should have maybe get, gotten a coach in. Because having a, a guy like Stellini there, very inexperienced, I guess that leads to decisions like, let's go away to Newcastle and play a back four with like Perisic and Pedro Porro as fullbacks. You know, who, but Perisic is certainly a left winger playing out of position at wingback, who's kind of gotten used to that. Pedro Porro has played wingback most of his club career as well. Not really back four guys, not used to doing that at all. And you have two central defenders there in, and Romero, who likes to be really aggressive and step up, and in the back two, he has to be more sensible. So it's not really, not really his game either. Eric Dyer is kind of slow. Definitely likes the protection he gets from having a center half either side of him. So those two in the two, pretty dodgy as well. Not sure I like that. Maybe it can be coached. But in this case, it's like, yeah, let's just try this in training a couple of days, and then we'll go away to St. James's Park, and I'm sure it'll be fine. And, and they went out there, and they also did this thing where they kept a really high line and had no pressure on the ball, which I would expect like a small child or Frank Lampard to understand that you can't do. So, so, so you, you get this combination of terrible defending uh, by guys who are not really familiar with the system they're playing and just not competing for challenges in midfield properly, and just a total mental and emotional breakdown, I think, you know, then things started going badly. It was quite a thing to watch. But this is where you end up. You know, this is what's what was happening on the pitch, I thought was a pretty good metaphor for where Tottenham are right now, in that some of the constituent parts that you're working with are still kind of good, but there's just no plan, no coherent strategy. Uh, they created a whole new position for Paratici, but he is now banned and can't do the job and has had to leave. And anyway, his big move was to bring in Antonio Conte, and that ended up not being very good. So uh, I- I'm not going to do the plumber analogy again, but I've seen more of these Conte was right takes on the internet this weekend. And oh my God, that that remains the dumbest of all takes. And it was like, well, yeah, he was, yeah, 
the, the, the guy who couldn't make the team better uh, correctly identifies that the team isn't very good. You know, what a legend. He's so smart. Um, so anyway, you, 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 you look at a team that has no sporting director, no manager to speak of, and they're trying to play a formation that the players don't know very well and probably aren't very well suited to. Turns out you get absolutely stuffed when you come up against a rival who has a much clearer system in place and when people know what they're meant to be doing. Yeah, that, that seems about right. That, that's where Tottenham are right now. And, uh, and, and the situation right now is that they're not getting a top four place no matter what happens. So I actually think a couple of like truly humiliating defeats could be more useful to the club compared to if they just muddle through and maybe sneak a couple of wins like against Brighton, which they didn't deserve at all. You can get a few results through like luck and individual brilliance. And that might trick Daniel Levy and anyone else uh, responsible for stuff at the club to think, yeah, we're actually close. You know, we just a few tweaks and we may, we might be good again. No, this needs to go completely wrong. It needs to be such a massive disaster that everyone understands. Uh, it needs to be, it needs a big reset this summer. You need to, to just go, you have a just like, burn everything to the ground. Uh, maybe not the stadium, stadium and training ground. That's good. But like a total reset. Uh, this summer and uh, and and have some kind of strategy have some sort of vision have some sort of plan and put put people in place that that can implement those i think that's what tottenham need and i actually think in terms of triggering that might actually be better if they get tonked a couple of times and humiliated so no one can fool themselves into thinking that they're anywhere near moving in the right direction anyway bit of a betting segment at the end it's what we do um follow up on the last one we did i mean Arsenal, aston villa were not great against brentford they did rescue the draw so we got the push we got the stake returned for the bet we were talking about on the pod at least uh mixed bag for the betting column both teams to score landed in fulham leads that was kind of my big no-brainer bet of the weekend that landed as did both teams to score in newcastle tottenham so two out of three singles is decent treble didn't land crystal palace let me down but you know what with the weekly betting column, I mean, it's always a boosted treble and three selected single bets. And I always tend to think, if we're in profit from the three singles, that's a decent weekend. And the the the, the treble will, will come and go in a bit. That's in the nature of the treble. But we'll see if we can cook up a better one next time around. For, for the midweek, let's have a look at this. I want to go both teams to score in a Leeds game again because they host Leicester City. Leicester getting a huge three points against Wolves this weekend. Very, very important for them. They're pretty consistent goal scorers away from home. Uh, Leicester City are. They've scored in, I think, 13 out of 16 away games this uh, season. They face a Leeds team who you'll remember from the betting preview before the weekend. They're one of the most consistent uh, both teams to score teams in the league. No team in the Premier League has been involved in a higher percentage of games where both the teams have scored this season than Leeds, 62%. Both teams to score has actually landed in seven straight Leeds United games in the Premier League now, right? So when they host Leicester, the situation is pretty simple. You would expect Leeds to score at least one goal at home against uh, what is a pretty goofy Leicester defense a lot of the time. And and you don't really expect them to keep a clean sheet because you don't expect Leeds to keep a clean sheet against anyone right now. So Leicester, for all their flaws, they do have some really good attackers in the team. So I'm thinking both teams to score. You can get that at 162 uh, with bets on. I think that's a perfectly fine bet. Uh, I, I think there's reasonable value there. 162 is a bit lower than we tend to pick for our sing- singles. And actually, you know what? 
I think we can add over two and a half goals here pretty safely. So we say both teams to score and for the game to not finish 1-1. Now, I did notice in the Fulham game that Javi Gracia ha- is, is trying to make Leeds slightly more defensively minded. But they still have Elon Meslier in goal, and that, that wasn't good against Fulham. And if Fulham without Mitrovic could find a way through, then I trust Leicester to do that as well. So let's let's say both teams to score and not 1-1. Both teams to score and over two and a half goals. That gives us a price of 2.01. And that leaves you with a pretty simple question, right? Do you think there's more than a 50% chance that we get both teams to score and more than two goals? I, I, I think that's a clear yes. I think it's definitely more than 50% chance of that. Uh, both teams are decent in attack and unreliable at the back. We should get goals, right? So I think that is a absolutely fine bet on the on Tuesday night. Uh, and there might, I'm, I'm see if I can knock out a, a little bit of a midweek betting uh, column for you guys as well, since we have some exciting midweek games. Check out my Twitter account. Keep a, keep a lookout for that. And as always, do gamble responsibly. Thanks for hanging out with me. On the on this uh, on this fine Tuesday evening, all eyes on the big game this week. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I've heard some people be be a little bit cynical and says, "Well, the title race is is almost over." And listen, Arsenal haven't looked lately like they'd be capable of getting anything. But you know, can still happen. Can still happen. Maybe Arteta, you know, the the student facing his old master, has identified a flaw. Uh, maybe he's found this sort of exhaust port in the Death Star. We we wait and see. We wait and see, you guys. We'll uh, be back with a pod after that game, I'm sure. There'll be much, much, much to discuss. See you later. Of course they sacked Stellini after I was done recording this. Of course they did. You know what? There's not much to add, is there? Just total nonsense all that. I'm rooting for the flames at this point. Bring on the forest fire. Let it burn, guys. Just let it burn.